Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Desmond Lochman, who joined AEI as a senior fellow after serving as managing director and chief emerging market economic strategist at Solomon Smith Barney. He previously served as deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's Policy Development and Review Department and was active in staff formulation of IMF policies. Uh, Desmond has written extensively on the global economic crisis, the U.S. housing market burst, the U.S. dollar, and the strains in the euro arena. At AEI, Mr. Lockman is focused on the global macroeconomy, global currency issues, and the multi- multilateral lending agencies. Thanks for joining us on Banter. My pleasure. Des, your writing has stressed a strong theme for some time, it seems to me, and that is that, is that there's too much debt. And it's going to catch up with us. And now, with the rising inflation, uh, you know, uh, levels not seen in 30 years, is your prediction coming true? Yes. uh, My prediction certainly seems to be coming true, you know, that I've taken the position that the budget stimulus was far too great. I'm referring to the budget stimulus in March of 2021, that was something like $1.9 trillion. It made little sense at the time that the economy was already recovering and that we already had $3 trillion in stimulus on a bipartisan basis the year before. So what it meant in a two-year period, the economy was getting $5 trillion of stimulus. That's about 20% of GDP. That is by far the largest peacetime budget stimulus we had had. So it came as no surprise to me that when you had that kind of budget stimulus together with the Federal Reserve printing money like it was going out of fashion, the Federal Reserve bought something like $5 trillion in bonds, it came as no surprise to me that we've seen inflation accelerate and that we've now got something like 7% inflation at the consumer price level, an inflation we haven't seen in 40 years. So this really just looks to me like we've just really printed far too much money. We've got far too much debt. And my fear is that what this is setting us up for is a hard landing. And the reason I say that is because this money printing, what it has done in addition to creating inflation, price inflation that everybody sees when they go to the grocery store or fill up their car or whatever purchases they make, they're a lot more expensive than they were a year earlier, what they've also done is they've inflated equity prices, they've inflated housing prices, they've inflated all of the credit markets. So my fear is that when the music stops, we're really going to get bursting bubbles, and that is really setting us up for a hard economic landing. So before we get to the future, let's just a little more on the past. Um, You mentioned both the Federal Reserve and the politicians in Washington, the piece of legislation you cited was passed in the first months of the Biden administration by, I think, uh, uh, Democratic um, majorities. But this goes back further. And I just wanted to ask whether Chairman Powell has been a big disappointment to you or a little disappointment. He's clearly a disappointment. But 
and 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 is he caved to political pressure? Well, Powell would seem to me to be a bit of a mixed bag. His reaction to the pandemic, when we go back to something like March of 2020, coming out with his guns blazing, stabilizing the markets, that was the right thing to do. So I give him a high marks for what he did initially in the pandemic. Where my disappointment is, is that he kept monetary policy far too easy for far too long. And I'm not sure whether that was associated with the fact that he wanted to be renominated, but he should have known better not to keep buying $120 billion in mortgage-backed securities and U.S. Treasuries each month when the housing market was on fire, when the equity market was booming, when the economy was recovering strongly, when there were plenty of signs of inflation. So in that sense, I would say he's been a great disappointment. He's really should have been doing what central bankers are supposed to do. Is they supposed to be taking away the punch bowl, you know, when the party really is getting out of hand. And it just seems to me that what he's been doing is he's been spiking the punch bowl, you know, and that's great fun while it goes on. You know, so we've got uh, the economy roaring, we've got employment coming back, but now we've got the inflation now he's going to have to slam on the brakes, and that is when we're going to be paying the price for these kind of excesses. So I would say that uh, the Fed, the last year, has really behaved in a highly irresponsible manner. You know, it just surprises me that uh, instead of sounding caution about the Biden budget stimulus, he seemed to have been cheerleading it, and he seems to have printed too much money. Now, you mentioned the $5 trillion that has gone into the economy, uh, uh, but you didn't count, I don't think, the infrastructure bill, which added another uh, big investment. Uh, Correct. So, so that's Correct. even that, – that's, yeah, good to give you your view of that. Yeah, that just adds further fire – further fuel to the fire. But that is going to be spread out over a number of years – that is partly financed. It's going to add to the inflation problem, but that's really not the big immediate problem that we have. The immediate problem that we have is that $5 trillion package. You know, now we're going to be adding a couple of hundred billion dollars to it each year you know, for the next eight years or so. That adds to the problem. You know, that it just seems – the problem seems to be deeper at the budget level that – People seem to have bought into this idea that we don't really have to worry about budget deficits. We don't have to worry about the debt level. When interest rates are so low, we can do stuff that we can't do before. But history is just littered with examples of too much spending and too much debt getting countries into uh, real difficulty. You know, and I'm afraid that... Uh, there's no real consensus for responsible budget policy, and that applies to the Republican administration as well. You know, that if you go back to the Trump tax cut, he engaged in a corporate tax cut that wasn't properly financed, that added to the deficit, the uh, 
Congressional Budget Office estimates that that added something like $1.5 trillion to the deficit over the course of a number of years. There just seems to be no consensus on either side of the aisle for running the budget in a responsible manner. Hmm. You mentioned that um, we haven't seen inflation numbers this high in about 40 years. Um, And I wanted to know your opinion on why it took so long to see inflation start to surge. It seems like some of these factors like soaring debt and high spending, those have been pretty consistent over at least the past two decades. Um, And it seemed like kind of other secular forces like globalization and efficiency may have been keeping inflation down. So what caused all of that to change? Was it really just kind of COVID and that temporary surge in spending? Right. The idea with inflation is that you're not going to get the inflation if you've got a lot of unemployment and you've got a lot of spare capacity. So, you know, if you look at the episode that we had uh, the last two years, that at the start, you weren't going to get much inflation. You know, when unemployment was 14%, when the economy was deep in a recession, those are very strong deflationary forces. So it takes time before too much demand really pushes the prices high. So you, know, we're, you could see in March 2021, you could see that that $1.9 trillion package was going to cause overheating towards the end of the year. But right in March, you, know, you didn't really have those uh, pressures. What's occurred in uh, 2021 is that the administration and the Fed, they did run into a round of bad luck in that the pandemic abroad disrupted supply chains, pushed up shipping costs, you know, caused shortages of materials, you know, so that that added to the inflationary mix. But generally, we don't see the inflation immediately when policy is run in an irresponsible way. And, you know, this kind of budget uh, policy that we've had uh, the last two years, that we haven't seen in the post-war period, you know, that to that degree that you're throwing something like 20% of GDP in budget spending in a period of two years, uh, that just has no precedent. You know, that we, we haven't seen budget deficits, 15, 16% of GDP. Those numbers are just mind-boggling. And you know, when you look at the debt numbers, that is really very uh, concerning, you know, the kind of path that the country is now on. Well, uh, there was some good news in that the uh, Build Back Better round of spending that the president wanted uh, appears to have been, at least for now, defeated. Uh, I presume you take that as good news and a sign of maybe progress in the right direction. And now I presume you think that um, they're now saying they're going to raise interest rates at the Fed. I presume you think that's good, too. Am I right about that? Yeah, well, you know, the idea that Joe Manchin had stopped a package, you know, that had another two and a half trillion dollar handle on it, uh, you know, that is good news, you know, that that would have just made the situation a whole lot worse. You know, if you're wanting to do those kind of things, those kind of things, you know, that's a political choice, you know, that Congress should decide. 
but they've got to do it in a way that it's properly financed. You know, and this Build Back America plan wasn't properly financed. Similarly, with the interest rates, you know, that it's good that the interest rates are now rising, you know, that the Fed, after telling us that they weren't going to raise interest rates till 2023, they're now conceding that the inflation isn't as transitory as they thought it was, that there is an inflation problem. So now what they've done is they've penciled in three interest rate hikes in uh, 2022. You know, and that is good that they've recognized that they've got a problem. You know, my fear, though, is what the Fed has done is it's got itself into a big box because what they've done as I've mentioned, is not only have they created price inflation, but they've created bubbles in financial markets and in asset markets, you know, things like the equity prices that we're now seeing. We haven't seen equity valuations like this. We've only seen them once in the last 100 years. So the equity valuations are at levels that are double what they normally would be. And simply, housing prices are increasing by 20% that we've now got house prices today, if you adjust, even if you adjust them for inflation, they're higher than they were in the 2006 bubble. So the trouble is that as soon as the Fed starts raising interest rates, one of the basic assumptions on which those bubbles have been based, that interest rates are going to stay ultra low forever, well, once the Fed starts raising interest rates, you know, people are going to be revising their view as to whether interest rates are in fact going to stay low forever. And that's the time when the bubbles burst. So I'm finding it very difficult to see how we're not going to have a hard economic landing later this year, or if not before, you know, once the Fed starts uh, raising interest rates and the bubbles burst. So the Fed's in a terrible position that if they don't raise interest rates, then there's the risk that inflation expectations become well entrenched, that we get into a wage price spiral, that we go back to the 1970s kind of inflation. On the other hand, if they raise infl interest rates, they risk bursting these bubbles. So the Fed is really caught between a rock and a hard place. And that, in my view, is of their own making. You know, they should have been thought twice before expanding the size of their balance sheet by $5 trillion. Just to get that $5 trillion into perspective, that what I find of interest is that when Bernanke dealt with the bursting of the bubble in 2008-2009, it took him something like six years to expand the Fed's balance sheet by $4.5 trillion. It took Powell's Fed less than a year to do the same thing. So we haven't seen monetary expansion of this sort um, for at least 40, 50 years. So, you know, I believe Milton Friedman was right when he said monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. You know, what Friedman also said is inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So it doesn't surprise me that with that kind of money printing that we've now got an inflation problem. 
So economic policy is full of these uh, metaphors, bubbles bursting and things punch like bowls. that. Yeah, punch bowls. And one of the ones that I've heard before is that when the tide goes out, people are, you find out which companies are really, you know, have their bathing suits on and which ones are naked. <laughs> Maybe that's what, the, it's a Warren Buffett uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah. metaphor. Uh, so I want to ask you about asset bubbles, uh, uh, Des. We have these unbelievable technology companies, Apple and Microsoft, who've had an enormous run-up in their valuation. Uh, and they've, in some respects, carried the market. Um, are they going to be exposed as being grossly overvalued? Yeah, that's, you know, I don't want to mention particular names like Apple. I haven't looked into their particulars. But there are many companies that have been valued in the same way as they were in the dot-com bubble. You know, so there are plenty of companies, you know, these high-tech uh, companies that don't have any earnings but have the promise that, you know, maybe sometime in the future they're really going to be the new, new thing and going to be so profitable. You know, people have really flocked to them and bit them up. Um, and part of the reason that people have done that is that interest rates have been at zero levels. So, you know, people have really been desperate for these kind of stories. And that's basically how you get the um, the asset price bubbles, you know, and what occurs in that kind of atmosphere is because everything is going up, everybody thinks it's always going to go up. So it sucks more and more people in. You know, we've got a dangerous situation, in my view, this time around, in that we've had too many people sitting at home, you know, during this pandemic, not having anything to do, and then fancying themselves as day traders. So we've got a lot of very inexperienced investors involved in this market. They've taken on leverage. You know, that is really a a very bad sign. You know, when everybody thinks that it can only go up, you know, that's normally there's, uh, you know, if you're looking for more metaphors, you know, Joe Kennedy, apparently, when people asked him why did he sell his stock, how did he know to sell his stock in 1929, just before the crash, he said as soon as his shoeshine boy began asking him for tips on the stock market, you know, he knew that it was time to get out. You know, and I think that that is the kind of atmosphere that the Fed has created by its uh, very low interest rates. What I'm more concerned about, I'm not as concerned about the equity market as I am uh, about lending. You know, that what we've had is we've had a huge amount of lending to companies that are not particularly credit worthy, but they've been able to raise vast sums of money at very low interest rates. And, you know, that is the time when Warren Buffett's saying is, comes true is that once those interest rates begin to rise and once the credit isn't so available, we'll see which companies have been uh, swimming yeah. naked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, all right, I, I get that. But but I thought, but with the banks, what about the financial system? Isn't the banks, aren't they a little better capitalized uh, than they were uh, before the financial crisis? Are you, are, are you pro yes. those no, no. strong capitalization uh, ab- requirements? No, absolutely. That uh, one strength that we do have this time around in relation to uh, 2008, 2009, is that the banks are very much better capitalized. They've been very much better controlled. 
the trouble in the U.S. financial system isn't the banks. It's what economists refer to either as the shadow banking system or the non-bank part of the banking system. You know, what one's really referring to is things like the hedge funds, right. private equity New funds, lending. and so on. Yeah. Those are pretty much not regulated, and those have taken on a huge amount of risks. And, you know, my fear is that what we're going to see in this cycle is what we saw in um, way back in 1996. There was this uh, hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, which went belly up, you know, on uh, injudicious bets on the Russian economy. You know, we'll see the same sort of thing at this time around. We'll see many of these hedge funds will run into deep trouble when the tide goes out. So that is really the risk to the financial system. Then if we look abroad, uh, what the concern is, is that there are many emerging market economies that have been able to borrow lots of money, and this pandemic has really blown a hole in these countries' public finances. Once again, once the tide turns out, uh, we'll find that those countries, you know, places like Brazil or Turkey or South Africa, large emerging market economies will get into trouble. And we've also got problems, you know, with the European economy. So this isn't a simply a United States phenomenon. This is a phenomenon globally, you know, that's been created because the United, the Federal Reserve hasn't been the only bank that's been printing money. The European Central Bank has been printing money at an even faster rate than the Fed. Phoebe, you know, Des is one of our most prolific scholars. Mm-hmm. He writes all the time, yep. and he's he writes for, you know, he'll place it wherever he can get it placed because he wants his view out there, which I admire greatly. He's also a letter to the editor writer. You often, I'll pick up the Financial Times on the weekend, and there he is, and he writes letters to the other Wall Street Journal, and, and I, I really admire that. And I but it did make me wonder, as I'm also a big consumer of, of all of these media outlets, is, is how do you explain Paul Krugman? Uh, uh, maybe my answer is that I'm an economist and not a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm very disappointed with Paul Krugman in that, you know, somebody who really should know a lot better, you know, seems to have turned into somewhat of a political hack, you know, that he really is writing as a cheerleader. He he got the inflation so wrong. You know, he was in this debate with Larry Summers right at the start of the year. And Larry Summers was just saying, you know, pretty much what I'm saying, but, you know, perhaps more elegantly, that you can't have, uh, that Larry Summers characterized the Biden budget stimulus of $1.9 trillion as the most irresponsible budget policy that this country has had in the past 40 years. You know, Krugman took the other side, you know, that this is exactly the time to be going for broke, you know, oh, don't worry about the risks on the upside, you know, inflation, everybody's just exaggerating this business of inflation. You know, Krugman got this uh, absolutely wrong. That's clear to me, too. <laughs> the uh, Now, okay, so what do we do now, Des? What, what uh, gradually raise interest rates, um, uh, impose a little fiscal restraint, 
and hope for the best? Well, you know, from a... um from a theoretical point of view, there is a way out, you know, and that would be to have fiscal restraint so that the Fed doesn't have to do all of the heavy lifting. So if the Biden administration all of a sudden decided, let's cut back spending, let's raise some taxes, let's get the budget back into shape, the Fed wouldn't have to raise the interest rates anywhere near to the degree to which they're going to have to, to get a hold of inflation. But I wouldn't suggest holding your breath to wait for that to happen. You know, there's no way that that's going to happen. You know, they're not talking about budget restraint. They're rather talking about build back better or, you know, whatever plan comes, you know, that, so we're not, you know, the cost is pretty much, uh, the, die is cost in terms of the uh, uh, the budget policy. So the Fed has really got left holding the bag. Right. And I don't think they've got any uh, choice. You know, they really are going to have to start this interest rate hiking cycle. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think there's a house of cards that could come down. Um, I want to ask a, a very elementary question. What is the term inflating away the debt? I mean, is there... I noticed the Wall Street Journal has written an article about the extent to which the tax revenues are much higher than than uh, was expected. Uh, is there some benefit to that with regard to the overall uh, fiscal situation of the country, uh, or am I, or is that is that a am I wrong about that? Well, you know, one can do that. You know, and many countries have done that, but. The price of that is enormous, you know, because that is the key point, even, you know, at 7% inflation, that what is really bad about the 7% inflation is the incidence of that inflation is on those people who least able to defend themselves. So we're talking about the poor, we're talking about pensioners who on fixed incomes or who relying on the savings from their bonds, those people are the ones that really get hosed with inflation uh, high. You know, so sure, you can solve the debt problem uh, by inflating away, but you know, really what you're doing is you're imposing a huge tax on those at the bottom end of the income scale. You know, and that just seems to me to be just a totally unfair way of going about it, you know, that the way to go about it is to do it equitably, you know, through cutting back spending, through raising taxes in a responsible way, get the budget back into shape. But, you know, what often happens is uh, that countries do inflate away the debt. In the United States, unlike other countries, you know, there's practically zero chance that we'll default on our debt because unlike other countries, what we've done is we've borrowed in our own currency. So the Fed can always print the dollars to repay the debt. So we're not going to get a default problem that way, but, you know, we could get, eventually we could get an inflation problem. My bigger concern is the immediate concern is my concern is the bubbles. You know, that we've created the housing bubble, the equity bubble, the credit market bubbles, an emerging market debt bubble. 
and that when the music stops playing of easy liquidity, I fear that those burst, you know, so that the inflation problem for me is a more distant problem from too much debt. But first, we'll go through a hard landing. Yeah. Um, as we come up on the two-year anniversary here of the pandemic. I'm just curious if we rewound to March 2020. Um, I know that you've acknowledged in, in your writing that there was some justifiable uh, you know, reasoning behind stimulus at the beginning of the pandemic um, and keeping rates low at that point. Um, but was there a way, do you think, to have handled this differently so that we could have kind of blunted the impact of the pandemic without creating inflation and, and limiting job growth? Yeah, no, that um, I wouldn't want to underestimate how difficult the policy choices were. You know, this you're talking about a once-in-a-century pandemic. Uh, we really didn't have any clue how the pandemic was going to play out. It really hit the economy really in a very hard way. You know, so... One needs to be forgiving for some policy mistakes that were made. Mm -hmm. That I could understand in 2020. But once we started recovering for both fiscal policy and monetary policy to be so expansive, that really could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. So there was no reason for the Federal Reserve to keep buying $120 billion of bonds a month in 2021, as the Powell Fed did. You know, there certainly was no reason for them to be buying housing bonds, you know, mortgage-backed securities when housing prices were going the roof, through the roof. Likewise with the administration, that there was no reason for a $1.9 trillion package. And in yeah. fact, most economists said that that was mm-hmm. excessive. You know, even the economists on the Democratic side were saying that $1.9 trillion was way too much. You know, that should be probably half the size. So, you know, those mistakes, I think those mistakes could have been avoided and mm-hmm. we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in today. Last question is on the labor market. Um, You don't often write about the labor market, or maybe you do, but I haven't read it as often. So we're at very low unemployment. We we basically have a labor shortage, uh, lots of job openings and uh, not enough people seeking them. Uh, When you say a hard landing, I always think you mean that there'll be a hard landing where there will be a lot less work available for Americans. Do you, is there something about the labor market now that makes that less likely? Uh, or, uh, or, or is that what a hard landing means uh, if it happens? No, that's what a hard landing means. A hard landing means is when you go back into recession, uh, one, will get, um, one will get output down, the demand for labor will be down, you know, unemployment will rise again. We've got a very curious labor market right now, you know, because of uh, the pandemic. You know, what it's doing is it's making people shift their spending from services like going on travel expeditions or going to restaurants or going to the movies or anything of that sort on the service-related side 
people aren't doing that as much as they were before. But what they are doing is they're sitting at home and deciding, how about let's improve our house or how about let's buying some exercise machines. So what we've got is we've got this real mismatch in the labor market. So we've got huge amount of job openings now, and there's a shortage of people to fill those jobs. You know, so this is a curious aspect of the labor market. The other big curious aspect is the great resignation, you know, that a whole bunch of people have decided after staying at home that, you know, the better things to do than going to work, you know, so maybe let's be satisfied with less income. So we've had something like four and a half million people uh, resign the past year, you know, that that's way record. So there are various things going on in the labor market, which are unusual, that are contributing to the shortage. You know, what happens is when you get the labor shortage, then you're getting the pressure on the wages. You know, once you get the pressure on the wages, then you're getting the inflation. You know, so that is all working out. When you get the hard landing, that process will be reversed. You know, so uh, that's why, you know, I'm concerned about inflation from a long-run point of view. But I guess my view is different from the consensus view on this matter is that I think that we're first going to get a period of, once again, downward pressure on prices, you know, when the asset and credit market bubbles burst. Okay. This has been a very uh, sobering conversation, as it always is with Des. <laughs> and uh, uh, we greatly appreciate uh, you being with us today and your wisdom. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Good to talk to you both. Hello. My name's Christopher Scalia. I'm director of academic programs at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes spend a week studying policy with top scholars, participating in wide-ranging conversations with other students from various backgrounds, and learning about policy careers in Washington, D.C. This year's Summer Honors Program offers 16 week-long courses covering foreign and defense policy, domestic policy, economics, the law, and political science. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. This year's instructors include AEI's Yuval Levin, Corey Shockey, Michael Strain, James Capretta, Tim Carney, Brent Orell, Angela Rashidi, Michael Rubin, and John Yu. Six of the courses are offered through AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life and will integrate Christian faith, theology, and ethics into discussions about economics, public policy, and society. And did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs and provide lodging, meals, and we offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know a college student who fits that bill, I encourage you to take a look at our full list of courses and instructors and to learn more about this opportunity by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. 
The final deadline for applications is March 1, 2022. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.